Welcome to Bible Study, Parody, and Subversion in Matthew's Gospel. Sometimes cultures have very different understandings of some very basic things. For example, a thumbs-up gesture in the U.S. communicates that something is very good. But in some parts of the world, including parts of the Middle East, it is a vulgar and insulting gesture. You can only imagine how Donald Trump, who loved to do that when he was president, came across when pictures of him doing that were seen by people in those parts of the world, and then added to all the other vulgar and insulting things he did as president of the U.S., Another example is how we refer to people. My wife and I used to be part of a bilingual Spanish-English dinner group. The Spanish speakers were from Mexico and Honduras. We noticed that at least some of the people from Mexico would refer to people in a way that we would think was insulting, such as calling someone el gordo, which translates literally as the fat one. But they did it so naturally and without any trace of malice. I looked it up online and found that using that sort of language is not just normal, but even considered endearing, especially if you add the ito ending, as in el gordito. Of course, many of us know that as a Mexican food, but in reference to a person it means fatty, and it's meant as a term of endearment. I won't even get into why we in the dominant culture of the U.S. take it as an insult something to do with how we view and shame bodies. Anyway, the two passages that we will look at in this episode, right in the middle of the Passion narrative, suffer from misinterpretation by modern Western readers due to some fundamental cultural assumptions. When we understand the cultural differences, the meaning changes significantly. My name is Bert Newton, and this is episode 65 of Bible Study, Parody and Subversion in Matthew's Gospel. Let's begin with the first two verses of chapter 27. When morning came, all the chief priests and elders of the people conferred together against Jesus in order to bring about his death. They bound him, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate the governor. There was only one high priest or chief priest in the first century in Jerusalem. But here and in some earlier passages in the story, the narrator mentions chief priests plural. In fact, what most translators seem to do when the text uses the singular, referring to the actual person who occupies the highest office in the priesthood in Jerusalem, is to refer to him as the high priest. But when the text refers to a group of elite priests, it's translated the chief priests. But who is this group of elite priests? It seems to be a class of priests in Jerusalem, in whom priestly power is centralized. The term is found outside the New Testament in the works of Josephus. It's significant that the narrator uses it here along with elders of the people, which Carter states would be the fathers of the most powerful households in Jerusalem. 
The phrase chief priests and elders of the people not only refers to the Sanhedrin, a term that is not used here, but also signifies a distinct upper-class group of powerful people just below Herod and the Roman governor. These elites are shown as binding, in the U.S. today we would say handcuffing, Jesus and handing him over to the Roman governor. Matthew is telling us that this is a class conflict in which the upper classes are collaborating with the occupying foreign power. Let's continue with verses 3 to 10. When Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he repented and brought back the thirty pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders. He said, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. But they said, What is that to us? See to it yourself. Throwing down the pieces of silver in the temple, he departed, and he went and hanged himself. But the chief priest, taking the pieces of silver, said, It is not lawful to put them into the treasury, since they are blood money. After conferring together, they used them to buy the potter's field as a place to bury foreigners. For this reason, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then was fulfilled what had been spoken through the prophet Jeremiah. And they took the thirty pieces of silver, the price of the one on whom a price had been set, on whom some of the people of Israel had set a price. And they gave them for the potter's field, as the Lord commanded me. In Western Christianity, Judas is remembered ending his life unredeemed. And that's because of how modern Westerners view suicide. Although there has been recent movement toward allowing physician-assisted suicide for people with terminal illnesses, suicide overall still tends to be viewed as an unqualified tragedy. In non-Western societies, however, suicide is viewed as honorable in certain situations. For example, the liberation movement known as the Arab Spring began with the very public suicide by self-immolation of Mohammed Bouazizi. His example was repeated at least 13 times by others in the movement. Self-immolation is considered an act of self-sacrifice to protest injustice. And the practice goes back centuries. We see a similar attitude in the literature of the Bible. Paul Middleton has written a great article on this at the Bible Odyssey website, which I will read from because he says it so well. He writes, The biblical attitude toward suicide ranges from ambivalence to praise. There are seven unambiguous examples of suicide in the Bible. Abimelech, mortally wounded by a millstone, ordered his armor-bearer to dispatch him to avoid the suggestion that he had been slain by the woman who threw the stone. The prophet Ahithophel hanged himself after betraying David. Zimri burned down his house around himself after military defeat. And the more familiar stories of Saul and his armor-bearer, Samson, and, of course, Jesus' disciple Judas. There is nothing in any of these stories, Middleton states, to suggest that the biblical narrators disapprove of the character's suicides. Middleton continues, Suicide in the ancient world did not carry the same negative connotations it does today. For Greco-Roman philosophers, suicide in correct circumstances constituted a noble death. Socrates chose to drink hemlock rather than endure exile, a choice enthusiastically endorsed by most of the philosophical schools at the time. If carried out for country or friends, or in the face of intolerable pain, incurable disease, 
devastating misfortune or shame, or to avoid capture on the battlefield, suicide constituted a noble death. Each of these instances of suicide found in the Bible, Middleton maintains, fits comfortably with noble death ideals. Saul's death, for example, finds a strikingly close parallel with that of the Greek general Publius, who, when similarly wounded on the battlefield, ordered his armor-bearer to kill him. Middleton maintains that two of these incidents of suicide in the Bible are viewed positively. One is the suicide of Samson, who took many enemy Philistines with him. The other is Judas. Although commentators debate over whether Judas was truly remorseful, the text clearly tells us that he repented or regretted what he had done. However you want to translate that word, the text is not really ambiguous. Middleton puts it this way, Arguably, the author of the Gospel of Matthew intends the reader to interpret the disciple Judas's hanging as an act of remorse. Judas repents and returns the blood money that he received for turning Jesus over to the authorities who executed him. Judas acknowledges that he has sinned in betraying innocent blood. His suicide may be interpreted as an act of atonement because he himself carries out the penalty laid down in the Hebrew Bible for taking life. No expiation can be made for the land for the blood that is shed in it, except by the blood of him who shed it. Numbers 35-33, see also Leviticus 24-17. There is no hint of condemnation of Judas's self-killing in Matthew. If anything, it is a solution to his guilt rather than something that adds to it. That's all from Paul Middleton. Given all of this, that the text clearly states that he repented, that he gave back the money and declared to the Sanhedrin that Jesus is innocent, that in the ancient world suicide is often seen as noble and honorable, and that suicide has played a significant role in political protest and movements for liberation, I want us to consider the possibility that Judas's act of suicide was not only honorable, but an act of both repentance and solidarity with Jesus who was about to be executed. Having betrayed Jesus to be crucified, Judas feels great shame and kills himself in repentance and solidarity. Now, that may feel like going too far for many Westerners, and I'm not trying to promote this sort of suicide, but this may be how it was understood in ancient Middle Eastern cultures and by the original audience of this gospel. Furthermore, Judas's honorable act is contrasted with the hypocritical and dishonorable behavior of the chief priests and elders who show contempt for him. Deuteronomy 27.25 states, Cursed be anyone who takes a bribe to shed innocent blood. Technically, Judas is the one who took the bribe, but presumably the ones making the bribe are also guilty. Yet the chief priests and elders refuse to take responsibility, saying, What is that to us? See to it yourself or as Matthew scholar Donald Hagner translates it, what difference is that to us? That's your problem. And then they turn around and acknowledge that the money is blood money, and therefore unclean and cannot be put into the temple treasury. Now, of course, unclean doesn't necessarily mean immoral, but in this case, the common person likely understands that this is an upper-class way of splitting hairs to maintain their own innocence while holding a peasant collaborator in disdain. So they buy a place called the potter's field as a place to bury foreigners who, of course, are considered unclean. All sorts of irony going on here. 
and the narrator says that this all fulfills a text from Jeremiah. The text actually combines a couple of texts from Jeremiah and one from Zechariah, but completely accurate attribution is a modern Western obsession. The author of Matthew has already demonstrated a practice of citing two texts that are combined into one and attributing them to the longer book of the two, which has happened here. Here, the narrator combines material from chapters 18, 19, and 32 of Jeremiah with material from Zechariah 11. Reading all of these texts as they are could get a little confusing, and modern Western commentators have tied themselves in knots trying to make sense of how this scene in Matthew fulfills them, often giving up. But if we look at themes and context, we find that Zechariah speaks of judgment on shepherds who don't take care of their flock, much as the Sanhedrin are not taking care of the people. In fact, it seems to speak of a prophet who became a shepherd to reveal how shepherds are abdicating their responsibility to care for the flock, which sounds sort of like Jesus in his prophetic shepherding role in Matthew. And then this shepherd's value is assessed at 30 shekels of silver, which is thrown into the treasury. The Jeremiah passages speak of a potter's house and buying a field and judgment on Israel or its leaders, specifically naming the senior priests and the elders of the people, for filling the land with innocent blood so that a valley is renamed the Valley of Slaughter. All of these passages speak of judgment on the nation, Jeremiah specifically citing the Babylonian oppression as the judgment. In the first century, Jewish writers would often use the term Babylon as code for Rome. For those steeped in the poetry of these prophetic passages, there is a literary sense in which they are being fulfilled by this scene in Matthew. All that the prophets spoke about in their day is being repeated now and coming together in Jesus and his movement. Interestingly, the field that is bought in Jeremiah 32 signifies redemption for Israel after the judgment. Perhaps there is some irony here in the field being set aside for burying foreigners. Burial conferred dignity on the departed, so while the Sanhedrin thinks of such a field as unclean and therefore appropriate to be bought with blood money, it will provide dignity in death for foreigners and perhaps signals the inclusion of the Gentiles in God's new society. Let's continue with verses 11 to 14. Now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said, You say so. But when he was accused by the chief priests and elders, he did not answer. Then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many accusations they make against you? But he gave him no answer, not even to a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. If we take careful notice as to which questions Jesus answers in his two trials, the one before the Sanhedrin and the one before Pilate, we notice a pattern. When asked about his identity, if he is the Messiah, the Son of God, or the King of the Jews, he replies with an ambiguous answer, which the NRSV translates, You say so, which is pretty close to the literal translation, which is, You say. Is that an affirmation? Is that a negation? Telling Pilate that's what he says, but it's not necessarily so? It's unclear. With the Sanhedrin, he also quotes the vision of Daniel 7, but not with Pilate, perhaps because Pilate wouldn't know the text, and the Sanhedrin would. Against any other charges in both trials, he remains silent. 
Effectively, he treats the Sanhedrin and the Roman governor the same. The term King of the Jews, which Pilate uses, is functionally the equivalent of Messiah. In fact, we will shortly see that Pilate will switch to using the term Messiah. King of the Jews was a messianic title. Multiple Jewish rebel leaders in the first century took the title of king. And we should not forget that the title King of the Jews was first used in chapter 2 by the Magi, causing Herod to immediately try to exterminate this threat. So when the Sanhedrin ask him if he is the Messiah, the Son of God, and Pilate asks him if he is King of the Jews, they are essentially asking the same question. Is he leading a rebellion against Rome? And Jesus responds to them in the same way. You say so. Let's read verses 15 to 26. Now at the festival, the governor was accustomed to release a prisoner for the crowd, anyone whom they wanted. At that time, they had a notorious prisoner called Jesus Barabbas. So after they had gathered, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release for you? Jesus Barabbas or Jesus who is called Messiah or the Christ? For he realized that it was out of jealousy that they had handed him over. While he was sitting on the judgment seat, His wife sent word to him, Have nothing to do with that innocent man. For today I have suffered a great deal because of a dream about him. Now the chief priests and elders persuaded the crowds to ask for Barabbas and to have Jesus killed. The governor again said to them, Which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, Then what should I do with Jesus who is called the Messiah, or Christ? All of them said, Let him be crucified. Then he asked them, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Let him be crucified. So when Pilate saw that he could do nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took some water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. Then the people as a whole answered, His blood be on us and our children. So he released Barabbas for them, and after flogging Jesus, he handed him over to be crucified. So here we have a choice and a contrast between two Jesuses. Jesus the Messiah, Jesus Christ, Messiah means Christ, or Jesus Barabbas. Barabbas means son of the Father. So our protagonist, Jesus Christ, who has earlier been revealed to be son of God, is now stood up next to another Jesus who is son of the Father. If Father in Barabbas is God, then the question is, Which one of these is the true Son of God? They are both revolutionaries and have both been arrested for revolutionary activities. Jesus Christ has been working for revolution through a campaign of healing and feeding people and teaching them about God's new society. Jesus Barabbas has been fighting violently to overthrow the ruling elite and liberate Israel from the Roman Empire. There is no evidence that Roman governors ever had a custom of releasing prisoners accused of revolutionary activities. Such a practice, in fact, doesn't make much sense. The empire ruthlessly eliminated all threats. Why would they release anyone like this? This seems almost like an absurd scene preserved in all four Gospels of the New Testament, a scene devised to show the contrast between two ways of revolution, so that we can contemplate Which one is the greater threat to the empire? The one who is the greater threat will not be released. 
We might get thrown off a little bit because Pilate seems to want to release Jesus Christ rather than Jesus Barabbas, but the portrayal here is of a clueless Roman governor who doesn't seem to know what is going on and is weak and easily manipulated by the crowd. The crowd is a mix of both pilgrims in town for the Passover and inhabitants of Jerusalem, most of whom come from elite families. Most people in the elite families don't want revolution. They're doing just fine in the current situation, and some even have Roman citizenship. Everyone else in the crowd favors liberation, though how to get there is a matter of much debate. And this is Passover, the celebration of the liberation of Israel from imperial domination. So this crowd is ripe for manipulation by the Sanhedrin. Pilate has contempt for the Sanhedrin, the way that powerful people in a hierarchy have contempt for everyone below them in the hierarchy, the way that imperial rulers have contempt for provincial rulers. The same way that the Sanhedrin showed contempt for Judas even as they used him to get Jesus. Pilate's offer to release Jesus Christ or Jesus Barabbas thinking the crowd will choose Jesus Christ over a violent insurrectionist, is motivated by being able to perceive that Jesus Christ is very troubling to the Jerusalem elite. He likes that. Most English translations translate the word used to describe what Pilate understands about the Sanhedrin's thoughts as jealousy. But it can also be translated as spite or holding a grudge. Pilate doesn't understand the threat that Jesus poses but can see that it has the Sanhedrin in a tizzy. So he's trying to have a little fun by undermining them, thinking the crowd will surely choose Jesus Christ to be released rather than Jesus Barabbas. And his wife even warns him to release Jesus Christ due to a dream that she has had. But he is too weak, so he washes his hands and releases Jesus Barabbas. He releases a violent revolutionary and keeps the nonviolent one. Some commentators have read this scene as an attempt by the gospel writer to let the Romans off the hook by depicting the Roman governor as reluctant, even innocent, of Jesus' death, and that the Jewish authorities, even the Jewish people, the crowd, are to blame. But in an honor-shame society, a portrayal of a governor who has lost control of the situation and doesn't seem to know what's going on is not a favorable portrayal. Yes, the gospel writer does want to show the very active criminality of the Jerusalem ruling class, and perhaps even how easily people can be manipulated. These are people who should have known better. This is likely the class from which the gospel writer, a scribe, comes from. He knows they should know better. He wants to emphasize their guilt. But he is not letting the Romans off the hook. The Roman governor is weak and clueless and we will see the Roman soldiers treat Jesus horribly. The Jerusalem ruling class, which understands better the threat that Jesus Christ poses, fears him more than Jesus Barabbas, and they prevail over a weak and clueless Roman governor to have Jesus Christ executed. Jesus Christ, then, is the greater threat to the powers and authorities of the old society. My name is Bert Newton. The music for this podcast has been provided by Bob Nolte and David Martin. Please spread the word about this podcast and give us ratings and reviews that will draw people to this podcast. You can send questions and comments to subversivewisdom at gmail.com. Thank you to everyone who has supported this podcast in all the ways that you have done that. 
This has been episode 65 of Bible Study, Parody and Subversion in Matthew's Gospel.